0: mm
1: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic, presented by BetMGM. I am Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. The Red Wings had two games this past weekend against Tampa Bay Lightning. They win one, one to zero in the shootout. Thomas Grice gets his second straight shutout, and this time the Red Wings win it. And then in game two, they lose two to one uh, against the Lightning. Phillips Adina scores. Jonathan Bernier posts 40 saves, but the Lightning win it two to one. They have two more games left in their season, none of them this week. It'll be Friday and Saturday uh, at Columbus, a game with very big (laughs) draft lottery implications. Uh, We'll get to that in a second, but Prashant, any takeaways that you had out of these two games against the Lightning?
2: I mean, this has been absolutely brutal hockey. Like uh, We're talking about a team right now just missing basically the entirety of their offense, and and you are seeing exactly that. Um, I mean, the Wings have been... Grossly outshot in four of their last five games. Uh, I think uh, I was looking through Evolving Hockey stats, and I it blew my mind that in four of the last five games, the Wings have been sub thirty percent in the five on five expected goals for percentage, and somehow have won. You know more than one of those hockey games. So it's just like they're whatever they're doing, whatever this defensive structure is. It is infuriating for teams to play against because it keeps them in hockey games. But man, oh man, there is absolutely no offense anywhere to be found.
1: No, there's not. I mean, the, the goal they score comes on an odd man rush and some nice back and forth with Zadina and Vladislav Nemesnikov. Uh, other than that, I mean, it, just not a lot going on. Jacob Vrana is still creating some. You know, Zadina has actually had a few opportunities in these last couple of games, and that was the first one that he had got to go, which I guess is kind of how shooting percentages work, isn't it? But uh, you know, it, it's just not nearly enough. They're getting destroyed in shot attempts uh, and, and shots on goal per game. And and while I, I do think, you know, as we've talked about on the show before, the Red Wings are are a little bit comfortable with that trade off as long as the quality of chances ultimately skews even or in their favor. Uh, man, it makes for some high high pressure situations in the D zone for almost the whole game for them.
2: Yeah, I mean they. It's just basically uh they have collapsed into a defensive shell, and they are willing to just play this bend but don't break defense. I mean, you know you alluded to the the Zadina goal with uh him being able to go on that two on one rush. that only happens because Tampa had a four on two and yes. makes a makes an outstanding right. stop that kicks that puck to go back the other way. It's literally like hey. The goalies are playing really well right now and that kind of, you know, leads me into Thomas Rice who's really found his game, but we're just going to rely on our goalies to bail us out night in and night out. We're going to try and keep as much as we can to the perimeter and hope it works. It's it's basically the the pure definition of, you know, pulling the pin, lobbing the grenade up in the air and then just closing your eyes and hoping it doesn't come down and hit you because They're they're absolutely playing with fire, but because Grice and Bernier have been just sensational, really the the better part of April, uh, they've been able to stay in and win some of these hockey games that really they have no business being anywhere near. But they've done it consistently, and that, that does make me wonder if there's not something to it, you know? I mean, this is exactly, I think I said this maybe a handful of episodes Back the way the wings play is exactly the kind of team you do not want to play in the playoffs. This is exactly the kind of team that capitalizes on variance. This is exactly what Tortorella did to Tampa, you know, a, a couple years ago in the playoffs. This is what we watched those past two games. That's what Tampa had to deal with. They floridly outplayed the Jackets in that series and they got swept. And so it's the same kind of deal where you basically come in, you outshoot to. Detroit by, you know, 40 shots combined over the two games and you win two one and you lose one nothing like that's it's just they're not the fun team to play against at all. But it's really the only way they can go when you're missing your entire offense.
1: To me, the thing that I found the most objectionable about, um, you know, their their play was, uh, you know, as has been the case often this season was the power play. It just not nearly. Enough danger. The entries aren't good. They don't get set up well. They don't get dangerous looks, even when they have the odd man advantage. They had a two minute five on three. I think they got one shot on goal. Did they get one? They got one shot on goal in that, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, just one shot, and it wasn't even that great of a shot.
1: Not good. I mean, and, and after the game, you know, so the situation is the Red Wings, when you practice the power play, you're practicing five on four. You're probably not devoting a lot of time and practice to five on three. It's just not a common enough situation, especially in a year where there's very little practice time to spend much of your kind of limited on ice hours repping five on three. And yet you are five on three. Like that stands for every team in the league and every team in the league mostly manages to have pretty good five on three.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'd say most teams can do it. Although, you know, you're right, Max, to your point about not practicing it. Uh, Tampa had a five-on-three in that game that they ended up losing in a shootout late in the third period after Sam Gagnon. But it was dangerous
1: penalty. the whole time.
2: It Dangerous in the sense that they had the puck the entire time, but the, the part that I was actually really struggling with with that Tampa power play was they they could not figure out what shot they wanted. Yeah. Actually, I, let me take that back. They knew exactly what shot they wanted, and that was the only shot they were willing to take, and Detroit was able to to basically take that one shot away, and so while... Tampa had the puck the whole time, and you feel that danger and that pressure. They weren't necessarily taking the best of shots because the one single play that they wanted to go to—that slot pass, uh, you know, to, from from down low up high—they yeah. couldn't get it. And so that was, oh, it was just kind of fa- fascinating. Watch as another example because then Detroit comes in, and now granted they don't have the puck nearly as much in threatening situations as Tampa did, like. You know, in that Tampa five-on-three, the puck was always in a dangerous situation. It just they were trying to force this one specific shot, and they couldn't necessarily get that to work. Whereas Detroit can't even get the puck to be in a dangerous situation for a prolonged period of time. Uh, so you know, just differences there. But it is it is kind of fun to uh, to, to see all of that and 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 just realize that D- Detroit's got to be way better in that situation if they're going to try and win a hockey game like that.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And, you know, the power play at this point is let me I got to refresh the stat, but it it is right now it's like the third worst of the decade. And I think it's bottom five since the NHL has kept track, which is like 1978 bottom five power play percentage of the last 40 plus years at 10.3%. Like like I don't I don't know if you if you comment on a stat like that or if you just let it ride. But what comes to mind when you hear that?
2: I mean we talked about it earlier in the season when they were on that 0 for 41 streak right when uh they were actually starting to come up on history with the longest uh goalless drought in, in uh, that at least I could track back through many many hours of of scraping com, and and now you're seeing it come back around where their power play has again dropped back down to just 10% and it's just like my god like if if how how do you fix this and And this is on the heels of already being the worst power play team last year. Uh, You know, I think a lot of people have been uh, somewhat frustrated with the coaching. I thought you had a really nice piece piece talking about Blaschel there. But really, the biggest issue that seems to need to be fixed for this team right now is that power play. Because, I mean, you can't run multiple years with a historically awful power play um, and seem to think that you're going to be able to win these kinds of hockey games that are defense first.
1: Yeah. I I, I said it right. 10.3% is fifth worst since they started keeping track in 1977-78 in a single season. Uh, The worst ever is a tie between this year's Ducks. So they're not even the worst in the league technically this year. And the 97-98 Lightning, that is both at 9.4%. I don't think they can get there in two more games, barring something ridiculous. But that still tells you pretty much all you need to know about how bad it's been, as does the fact that At 10.3%, the 15th ranked power play, so pretty much squarely middle-of-the-pack power play in the NHL, I guess 16 would technically be middle-of-the-pack, but it works better for my stat if I say 15, uh, is 20.6% and the Buffalo Sabres, which is double. So if the Red Wings were twice as good on the power play, they'd still just be middle-of-the-pack.
2: And that's the fun part, is now do the math where if you were to just give them a league-average power play, how many more goals would they actually score based on the number of chances that they're generating? Because that's the thing. I
3: I did this earlier today. I know.
2: So so it's like you add another 15 goals to this hockey team, the team that's already the worst scoring team in the league, and maybe you actually win a handful more of those games that uh, you know. Yeah, depending on what games you get them. Right, exactly. Depending on the games that you get them in, uh, potentially you're looking at, uh, what, two or three more wins? I think most people... Um, You know, the mathematical conversion for goals to a win tends to be somewhere around five and a half to six, depending on what you're looking at. So you're literally talking about, you know, there are five or six points left on the table right there that simply would just come from being league average at the power play. Um, And so I think that's got to be the frustrating thing if you're the head coach of the Red Wings, if you're anyone watching this Red Wings team is if you literally could be average at this one thing you would have anywhere from five to six more points. Now, granted that may not be the best of things for this hockey team uh, based on what they need, but it's a, uh, it's frustrating when it's something that simple, just, just be average at the power play.
1: Yeah. Be average, at the power play. And really, if, if you're going to play the way that they play at five on five, it's a, it's a must. I mean, you, 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 if you're gonna have it all be about limit the easy stuff the other way on five, five on five, like then you have to do that and really have a power play that can make that work for you, you know? And, and you know, I don't like to um, call for people's jobs. You know, I, whenever I can, whenever it's not like whenever it's a toss up or whatever, I, I don't tend to kind of go to that well early. I just, something has to change about the Red Wings power play. And I don't know how you can bring back Biles, at least in the power play capacity, if it's if it's bottom 5 of the last 40 years i mean like how do you run that back
2: and that's the thing is again if you go back and you look at last season they were already the worst power play last year in just about every metric so this is a team that's now back to back years effectively been the worst team on the power play and and i don't even know anything that you can see there that really is like yeah there's signs of encouragement i mean whether it's simply goals that you're looking at whether it's expected goals for, whether it's shots actually taken at the net, there's nothing redeeming about this power play that suggests that it should be better than it actually is. And I think that's where you've got to be most frustrated. Like, you know, certainly there's bounces that don't go your way. There's things that, you know, are out of your hand, A a, a stick snaps on a grade A scoring chance. That stuff happens. But really, Detroit's not even generating those chances to deserve those goals. And so that's where I think you have to have a huge shakeup If anything needs to happen from there, I think that's where the shakeup has got to be because you can win the way Blaschel is coaching. He has demonstrated that. You know, we've seen other teams demonstrate that, but you can't do it when your power play is going to be the worst in the league. And frankly, the penalty kill has been a lot better, but at one point the penalty kill was also the worst in the league. And so you, you you can't actually be a competitive hockey team in that regard. If that's where you're going to be.
1: Yeah. It, you know, I think the, the eternal question is going to come back to, is the talent there to make this power play? You know, is, do they have average level talent on the power play? And to me, I look at it and I say, you know, do they have league average NHL talent overall? I'd still probably put it below. I would not put it at half of the, of the capacity of the middle team. Like that. I certainly would not say that. So, you know, if you want to say last year at 14.9% was a more reasonable expectation from them, I think that's fair, like a reflection of their true talent. If you, I guess, if you want to argue that variance is responsible for some of the dip this year, I listen to it, but I look at it and I say, you know, you, you've had now, whether it's Mantha or Verana, one of those two. You've had Larkin, you've had Zadina, you know, I think Philip Peronic. For as much as people want to criticize his his power play, I still think he can be a power play weapon. Now, whether he's in the right spot on that power play is a different matter. We know earlier in the year the Red Wings wanted to try him on the flank, and obviously there just weren't enough power play QB options to, I guess, keep that up. I can't believe that there aren't, you know, that there's not enough talent overall on this team for the power play to make it at least, at least, you know, not the worst of the last four decades or, or one of the five worst of the last four decades.
2: I mean you, you want to be as simple and straightforward as possible with it. Max, who's that team you used at 15th? Uh Buffalo. Buffalo. It's Buffalo. Without the Jack Sabres. Eichel. Right. They don't have Jack Eichel and they traded away Taylor Hall. Like and, and and they traded away Eric Stahl. Like that it's Buffalo. They're the league average team. Like, so Buffalo can do it. You can do it. Like, I don't I don't know what the problem is, but I just that makes the point right there that Buffalo can have a league average power play at 20.6%. And the Red Wings are half of that right now. And it's, it's just miserable.
1: Yeah. Yep. I agree. So anything else you want to talk about before we go to the mailbag, I guess we could talk about the lottery implications of this weekend. What should people be hoping for?
2: Well, I mean, if you're, if you're the uh, realist and recognizing that the wings definitely need some more shots at elite talent, you're hoping Columbus takes both of these in regulation. Uh, and that you get a couple of other uh, you know, help around the league. I mean, the Devils have certainly been doing their part. The Senators were almost doing their part until they blew that lead to Montreal. Um, and then you need the Canucks to start winning some of these games in hand. But I think that's what you're looking for around the league uh, to happen. But really, against Columbus, you've you got to find a way uh, for them to come out with two or three more points than you. So Columbus somehow has to win both these games. If
1: you are someone who uh, is of that mind and you would prefer that the Red Wings drop both and, and get the to, and maximize their uh, position in the lottery, ultimately what it takes is you need Columbus to win both. Uh, you need LA to win at least one more of their last seven games. You want Ottawa to win at least one more. You need the Red Wings to lose both in regulation. Uh, you need Ottawa to win one more game this year. Uh, you need Vancouver to win two more games this year and at least one in regulation. Uh, you need Anah- uh, and you need New Jersey to win two more games this year in regulation or overtime. that I think the maximum you're gonna get to at this point with any kind of realism is uh, th- third from the bottom, which would be the fourth best lottery odds. That's the path there. Uh, Columbus wins both games this weekend in regulation. LA wins one more game. Ottawa wins one more game. Uh, Vancouver wins two more games with at least one in regulation. Is that right? Or is it, is it more than that in regulation? Is it two more in regulation for Vancouver?
2: I think it's two more in regulation for Vancouver, but they've got so many games in hand.
1: Yeah. Okay. And then New Jersey would need to win two more with at least one in regulation or, or at least one in regulation. Yeah.
2: Yeah. At least yeah. one in regulation. And really the easiest way to keep track of this, for those of you that are, very much invested in the Red Wings being able to pick in the top five. Uh, Micah McCurdy on his site Hockey Viz has a chart titled the Sadness Chart, which is giving a team the probability of or what's their likelihood of missing the playoffs and not picking in the top five. And so it factors in the lotteries, it factors in all of those, the, the likelihood of them winning their remaining games. So right now, as it stands, Columbus is at 66% likelihood of missing the playoffs and not picking in the top five. Detroit is also at 66%. New Jersey's at 57%. Ottawa's at 74%. Vancouver, LA, Chicago, and um, San Jose are all north of 80%. So really, you know, the teams that they're jostling with, I think that are most important are going to be New Jersey, Ottawa, and and Columbus. And so they have the ability there, you know, with Columbus. I mean, I I saw someone tweet this. I can't remember who tweeted it. Might, might be time to give Caden Fulcher a look, right?
1: <laughs> I guess there's that route too, although that <laughs> would uh, provide a whole lot of fuel for the people who have been talking about the Red Wings uh, tanking for the last couple of years.
2: I, I mean, now now that would be certainly far more blatant than um, you maybe want to be in that, and I don't <laughs> think your players would respond Appreciate super well that. to to pulling Grice and Bernier in favor of Caden Fulcher. Um but at the same time, if you want to make it happen, I think there's a route there because really, truth be told, the Red Wings, the way they've played, haven't deserved to win any of their recent hockey games save for that last Columbus game. Uh, and the only reason they have points in any of them is because of Grice and Bernier, uh, which was, again, the big concern when you signed Grice at the beginning of the season was, was he going to make that goaltending tandem too good? For a large part of the season, he didn't have his game. But right now, this is vintage Thomas Grace. I mean, for the month of April... Grice led all goalies and goals saved above expected. When you factor in the quality of shots that he faced, he nearly doubled up second place. That's wow. how good he was. He so, was the
1: NHL's first star of the week this week.
2: Exactly. So, you know, I, the Red Wings goalies, if, you, if you're looking for the ace in the hole, what you have to take away from the Red Wings is not every single offensive player. You have to take away their goalies.
3: Yes. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone?
0: You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Shall we go to the mailbag?
2: Let's do it.
1: All right. Uh, we got two to start off on Philip Peronic. The first one is pretty broad. Cody Stark, compare how you felt about Philip Peronic in October of 2019 to how you feel about him now. Has he exceeded expectations? Is he disappointed? Is he right where he should be? Compared to October 2019, Prashanth, where are you at on Philip Ronick?
2: I mean, so October 2019, you're coming off of Philip Ronick's uh, really solid 1819 campaign where he had um, some pretty good results. Granted, he was in a relatively sheltered role, um, but he looked really, really promising. And I think if you probably went back and tracked back my tweets, I was really excited about him. I thought, man, this guy is an absolute steal. You know, getting him 53rd overall in the 2016 draft, I think he was uh, – I was very excited about him being this, um, you know, outstanding hockey player because he was basically a half-point-per-game defenseman as a rookie in 1819. Um, looked good on the power play and the chances that he got, and there was certainly a lot of excitement there. I think, obviously, the big thing is, you know, with Nick Cronwall – not being available. Danny DeKaiser missing a whole bunch of, uh, 2019, 2020. Uh, you really saw Philip Aronik real quickly get ushered into you are now the guy. And he really struggled. I think, uh, in, in 1920, particularly as the season went on, I think you saw the number of minutes he was playing really wear on him. Um, and then this season, Again, you know, you were sort of hoping that with the additions of John Merrill and Troy Stetcher, a healthy Danny DeKaiser, uh, that he would be able to maybe shed some of those minutes. He really hasn't. And his even strength scoring has sort of dropped off, although I think you know, he's certainly rounded out his game a little bit better recently. So moral of the story, I think if I'm comparing my expectations back to October 2019, I'm disappointed about where he's at right now. If I compare him back to the fact that he's the 53rd draft pick, I am ecstatic with what you've actually gotten at 53rd. Yeah, I think for
1: me in, in 2019, coming off the end of that season, I was starting to notice Heronic's, you know, whether well, it's his underlying impact. I think we were on the winged wheel pod together at one time before this one existed, and we were talking about Philip Heronick and about kind of his impacts. Um, I think we were looking at maybe Micah McCurdy's hockey viz. Uh, chart at that time and it was really promising and we were saying hey you know this is a guy that maybe should be getting a little more attention Uh, and I think probably at that time I would have said this is a guy who if development goes right you know I, I don't know if I would have said top pair or top four right now I think where I'm at is I think he's a second pair defenseman who can play really big minutes which is exactly what he's doing except for he's doing it as the top pair defenseman as the number one defenseman for the Red Wings so have I come down a little bit on him from two years ago? Probably, uh, but not by a whole lot. And I, I think ultimately he's a really steady three or four for you. Um, obviously, if, if you're a contender, you'd prefer that be as a four. Um, but if, if you're just a regular playoff team and he's your three, I think that's fine. I think he's, very, he's proven that he's capable of playing a big role. I think he'd be better if he were playing two minutes less per game a night, which is about what you want out of your second pair. Uh, defenseman but I think he can play in every situation. I know people again are upset with him on the power play right now and, and again I think he's just in the wrong spot on the power play. I think he should be on the on the flank and the Red Wings just don't have someone up top to make that feasible for them. Like who are you replacing with Hronik up top? You've already got Chalowski in that spot on the other power play. So I guess if you're going to you know Prashant's uh probably would say keep Dennis Chalowski up top for the whole 2 minutes, keep one power play unit for 2 minutes, which I don't disagree with or necessarily. Or five forwards or, right. five, or forwards. 5 forwards, yep. Um, although I still think you want a defenseman who, who's more comfortable walking the line. I have yet to see a forward look super <laughs> comfortable walking the line up there, but I get it. Um, but it, as long as they have two units, they just simply don't have another per, like, I guess you could try to put Stetcher there. Stetcher does not have necessarily the, the shot from the point that I would say makes him ultimately that dangerous. You could try Mark Stahl. Don't think it looked very good with Danny DeKaiser. Like, I just think he's, he should be on the other flank, but other than that, he kills penalties. Uh, he's a good, even strength player, in my opinion, he can move the puck, he can pass the puck, he can shoot the puck. And I think he defends fine. I think he's a good second pair defenseman, which is probably a little lower than I was on him in 2019. Um, but ultimately, like you said, still exceptional value for where they got him. And I think still very much a piece of this thing going forward.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think just the biggest challenge I've had to deal with is how do you, how do I reconcile Philip Peronic with what I see on the ice, which appears to be a guy that um, you know, seems to make good moves, seems to have you know reasonable uh, you know, breakout passes, seems to be an okay skater, you know, all of those components. How do I reconcile that with, with his stats? Um, that do attempt to account for a lot of that context that you know, mentally speaking, when we're watching live, we just simply cannot. Um, and you know, it's it's tough, that's that's the huge challenge for me because when I look at his his numbers, like Max, do you know what percentile? Philip Peronick is in from a goals above replacement standpoint this season?
1: I haven't looked uh, in a while. It's it's probably not good. It's probably like 13th or something. 0.
2: 0.6.
3: <laughs> All right. right. Zero. I mean, it's yeah. it's
2: literally you're saying not, he's 99.4% of players have better goals above replacements than him. He's in the 0.6th percentile. Um, and so, again, there's a lot of those contextual factors that I think sometimes these models don't
1: have the ability to fully. And goals above replacement is the most outcome-based, we should know. Right. Like that's the one right. that's the most like, you know, if you're on the ice for a goal against, you are getting hit for it, you know, more than you would for, say, in, in hockey versus heat maps or in GSVA, quite to the same degree at least, right? Yeah, yeah,
2: that that's yeah. correct because goals above replacement um, from the the Twins model on evolving hockey, that is based on the target variable of goals. You can always flip it over to the expected goals above replacement to get a little bit better assessment there. When you do that, you know, Philip Peronic definitely pans out a little bit better. He's actually still amongst the worst defensemen on his own team hmm. um, by that regard. But even still, it does look a little bit better because he's had the misfortune of being on the ice for a lot of goals against and he I plays think,
1: the toughest, you know, competition, right. certainly. in his Right. Role. And that's
2: right. the thing where like, you know, some of these models will tell you that they account for it, that they can do that. I think there is still some, areas where maybe they don't fully account for it, even though it is included. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, whether you use goals above replacement and he's the 0. 0.6 percentile, use expected goals above replacement and he's the 22.8 percentile. Either way, there's still a long way off of, you know, the the kind of defenseman I think a lot of people thought he would be after that 18, 19 season, right or wrong at that time. Yeah.
1: All right, well, that leads us into kind of the next question which is from Jordan Harris. And he says, given more Cider and the other right-handed D in the system. So I guess that would probably include Troy Stetcher, Gustav Lindstrom, Anti Tuamisto. Who am I forgetting?
2: Uh, I mean, I think those are the big ones because McIsaac will be a lefty. Johansson a will lefty, be a lefty. Sabrando's a lefty. Yeah. Sobrango goes a lefty. So All those right. are probably the big ones.
1: So given those ones that we mentioned, where does Hironik fit in to the future? And is he more valuable as a trade piece than he may be at his highest uh, due to his role? I think when his, his when his value may be at, at its highest due to his. Releasing. Yeah,
2: I think that's a fascinating question. And and granted, I significantly paraphrase this because this was like three paragraphs in my DM. So, Jordan, you told me to paraphrase it. That was my attempt to paraphrase it. Um, I think it's a fascinating question because this is one of the scenarios where perception doesn't line up with the stats. Right. I think across the league, a lot of people talk about Philip Peronic as a top pairing defenseman because that's what he's doing. Right now, he's playing all of those minutes. And so, does that inflate his value over his actual production? In which case, you know, if his actual production is going to be what it is, do you make that deal at that time or do you make that deal now when you might be able to get more back because people are are viewing him as a one or two defenseman uh, because that's what he's been doing for the last two years? Uh, I don't know what you think, Max. Well, it's
1: tough. I mean, I, I think ultimately you have a good young right-handed defenseman. That's a really valuable commodity for a reason because they're hard to find. And because when you don't have one and you want one, it costs you a ton to get one. So usually when you have one, you try to hold on to them. Now, if you're the Red Wings and you say, hey, I have one of those on the way, I think, and more at cider, and maybe I can get another one in like a Brant Clark in this coming draft uh, maybe I'm comfortable saying, Hey, okay, that's fine. If I can, if, if, if other people feel like this is a valuable commodity and I think it's a commodity that I have some of already and, and can get more, you know, maybe easier than other teams would because of where I tend to pick in the draft, I'm, I'd be open to it. It's just not something I'd be eager to do. And, and you know, I, I think this is always a tough line to straddle of like, you know, the players who have the most value almost inherently are the players you should most want to keep. There are some exceptions due to like age window and considerations. Those do not apply to Philip Ronick. He's a 23 year old, like it doesn't get younger than that, you know, uh, in terms of like actual established NHL players. So if you're doing it. It it has to be for something, to me, outstanding. I wouldn't do it for a run-of-the-mill first-round pick. I think you might. Is that fair?
2: Yeah. I think you're exactly right, or at least what you're saying is is, is how I would think about it as well, where I wouldn't necessarily go chasing a deal because, again, a lot of that hinges on what Moe Sider is going to look like at the NHL level. You still haven't seen that. You've seen AHL. You've seen SHL. But, again, like I have said, I think if you look at a lot of the different Um, league equivalencies, the NHL is probably twice as difficult as both of those leagues. Um, So, yes, he's looked really good in those leagues, but that puts a lot of pressure on Mo Sider to be it. Um, That puts a lot of pressure on future Brant Clark to be it. Uh, That puts a lot of pressure on Troy Stetcher to be it. And so I don't know that I would necessarily chase that deal, at least now. I think if you bring Sider over and he has like a Kale McCarr type impact, yes, I am absolutely chasing that deal. Because I want people to remember, hey, hey, this guy was a first pairing defenseman. You want to give me a first round pick plus for him, because now I've got that I'm 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 all solidified. But at the same time, the trade off you're making is how much better does Filiporonic's performance get when you actually put him in a role that he's better suited for. Right. And, and, and
1: you know, yeah. you talk about McCar. Like if if he, you know, first of all, Cider's not going to be Makar in terms of like the offense that McCarr brings. It, it's a whole that's an elite, elite, elite level. Like he might be he's gonna be on my Norris ballot. Um But if if Cider's an immediate impact top pair defenseman when he comes over, why don't you wanna just build a sick top four defense like Colorado so instantly did that's so young now between whether it's Makar, Gerard Byram's on the way, they traded for Devin Taves. Like, why not go that route with it? Just because you you have Sider come over and hit. Why not have two really good young right-hand defensemen?
2: So I think the challenge to doing that is gonna be how much do you pay Philip Peronic this offseason? No doubt. Because, you know, if that's what you ultimately think he is, that he's better slotted on that second pair um, as a three slash four, depending on what you've got. Can you afford to pay that three slash four? $4 million, $5 million, $5.5 million. Um, that's what I'm most curious about. And that's why I think, I don't think he gets moved this summer. But what I'm most interested in seeing is is what is he actually signed for, because I think that'll tell you a lot about the perception here. Because, you know, if you take a look at um, Evolving Hockey's uh, contract model, they actually haven't uh, projected on a bridge deal, they haven't actually projected at a, you know, point. Eight million for two years, which I think would be a uh, pretty reasonable deal for a guy that you're interested in keeping. Um, you end up making it a five-year deal and that projection flips to five and a half million so that's why I think it really depends on what they see in him and what they think he's gonna be. but if you do get him at that two year 3 point8 million deal, I think you're better off hanging on to him seeing what he looks like in that role if you are going to go that longer route then that's where i think you have to be looking to shop him because you're not going to be able to win uh, heck, committing that much money to a player who's playing you know on your second pairing or your third pairing because if you look at the way the avs did it you know Gerard is their most expensive defenseman at 5 million that'll change this offseason with Kyle McCar, but Devin Taves is 4.1 million Ryan Graves is 3.1 million so they were able to do it in ways that uh, didn't require them to commit that much money to those, uh, bottom pairs.
1: I think that's fair. I mean, to me, I'm, I'm keeping heroic Um, but I, I agree with your idea that you're not, you know, I'm not certainly not chasing a deal. I I would have an open mind to something, especially if someone like on anyone, if someone wants to blow me away, I'm going to listen. Like, why wouldn't I? But you know, if I'm a GM, I'm, I'm not looking to move out a guy who at, at 23 has proven he can play in any situation and has basically every trait that the Rebbings are going to want out of a defenseman anyway going forward at age 23. I think it's fair to, to look at the contract and say, is the, is the role you're going to pay him for now reflective of the one he's going to play in later? But I think bridging does go a long way towards solving that, and you can kind of make that decision later down the road. So, Hironik uh, seems to be in some people's crosshairs right now, and you know that, that does happen in sports and in this sport. But uh to me, I I still think he he projects as a as a piece for, for this rebuild going forward.
2: Yeah, I think basically you can push this conversation off two years with a nice with a well thought out bridge deal. Um that's gonna be key. And especially to get more data with him and Cider together um and not committing to something without knowing what two and me still looks like without knowing who you draft in twenty twenty one. I think a two-year deal makes a lot of sense because Philip Aronick is not a unrestricted free agent until after the 24-25 season. Correct. So you have time.
1: Yep. All right. On to some other young defensemen uh, in the expansion draft. Phil Roberto wants to know, compare the performance of Lindstrom and Chalowski to the rest of the Red Wings current defensemen. Why is it media, ourselves included, promoting a choice between them rather than keeping both? And I replied to Phil asking him a clarifying question. And I don't know, did he answer?
2: I did not see an answer from him.
1: All right, um, come on, Phil, help us out here. Well, nevertheless, um, I guess ultimately I, I assume Phil's aware that the Red Wings can protect three defensemen in the expansion draft. So the reason that we've been framing it as Chalowski or Lindstrom is because I think you and I are on the same page that you're you're using two of those three spots on Heronick and on Stetcher. And so my question to Phil was, who would you expose in order to keep both, knowing you can only protect 3D, I certainly would not expose He would be claimed in an instant. I think you would agree with that.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a no brainer for Seattle to do.
1: I think Stetcher would get claimed too. Uh, I, Seattle is an analytics focused front office. Troy Stetcher by analytics, I think is the Red Wings highest rated defenseman this season. That is correct. So he would get claimed as well. Uh, I'm not positive either. Chelowski or Lindstrom gets claimed. I bet Chelowski does. I'm not positive. Lindstrom does. Um, but to me, I mean, I, I don't see a reason not to protect either a or Stetcher. So that only le- it only leaves you Chelowski L- one of the two for Chelowski or
2: Lindstrom. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly where I'm at. Is like I have to. I have. There's no way I cannot protect Troy Stetcher and and Philip Peronic. I mean, if you're arguing not to protect Troy Stetcher, I think you've missed a lot of information from Stetcher this season because he's been very very good and he's still only 27. He just turned 27 this past month. So he is a guy that can be here for the next couple of years and still be a very serviceable defenseman. He gives you again, that right shot. He gives you the skating that really he's the best skater. I think on the red wings, blue line, um, there's too many pieces there that I I would just not be willing to part with, particularly when kind of the, the outcomes, the stats all line up with kind of the eyes. I, I just don't think you can leave him exposed, which means, yeah, you're picking between one of them. And then at this point, for Dennis Chalowski and Gustav Lindstrom, I mean, yes, they're both younger than, than Troy Stetcher. Do either of them have a ceiling that's higher than a th- higher than a third-pairing defenseman right now? My answer is no.
1: Ceiling's a tough conversation because I think we have seen from Chalowski some of the skills that you would look for in a defenseman who is higher than the third pair. But having all the full information on Chalowski, do I think there's more than a 5% chance that he hits that kind of level? I don't. So... You know, I guess that's where we get into kind of realistic ceiling and, and the marbles. Like, how many marbles am I putting in the top pair jar at this point? Zero. How many marbles am I putting in the second pair jar? Maybe one marble. And then the rest of the marbles are either in third pair or kind of 7th-D territory. So I guess that's kind of, that's a tough way to frame seal. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think maybe a better question to ask yourself, and this is the question the Red should ask themselves, is in the next five years, which defenseman's better? Troy Stetcher, Dennis Chalowski, or Gustav Lindstrom?
1: Yeah, and I think the answer is Troy Stetcher for me. I think it's
2: a slam dunk, Troy Stetcher. Um, I mean, you, there's an outside probability. There's maybe a, a you know a handful of scenarios, a five percent scenario, like you said, where Dennis Chalowski or Gustav Lindstrom is ultimately the best of those three. But I just don't see it right now. I when you get into
1: the let's just get into the conversation then of, of Chalowski and Lindstrom because we're already kind of dancing around it anyway. To me, what I see is Gustav Lindstrom. Probably more the type of defenseman who fits what the Red Wings uh, have done this year. I also think he's the easier replaced skill set of the two. And while Dennis Chalowski, I don't think fits quite the same way into the style and philosophy the Red Wings have wanted to play, in his skating, in his shots, and his passing, I do think he offers you some things that are harder to find um, or more expensive to bring in, at least. Than Lindstrom. And that's why I would keep him on board and just see, you know, can, can you make it fit in the style you want to play? I would take more risk there just because I think once you have a defenseman who has proven they can skate, they can score, they can, you know, produce offense. I just think that's more expensive and harder to find than the defenseman who can play a steady game and make a good first pass on their own net, not necessarily less valuable, but harder to get and, and more expensive once you do find it.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's actually a perfect summary. I think Lindstrom's skill set is is embodied by this system, you know, steady defenseman that can make a good breakout pass and that that basically fits what he's doing here. And Chalowski, while he has a, a more diverse skill set, doesn't necessarily mesh as well with the system. But uh, so, that, I mean, to me, Lindstrom's the kind of guy that's a little bit more easier to replace within the confines of a system. And I'd hang on to the more rare skill set, uh, like you said. You you brought
1: in a guy in John Merrill, who I think is the top end of what Gustav Lindstrom of what you could want Gustav Lindstrom to be, right? Like yeah. John Merrill's a, a dream outcome for Gustav Lindstrom. You got him for a million dollars last year. I don't see why you can't bring him back for you know two years at two and a half million dollars this summer. You know?
2: Yeah, I mean that's exactly it. Like John Merrill is the best possible outcome here. And you're still, that best possible outcome was available for a million bucks in free agency.
1: So, yeah. So to me, I I think you have to protect Chalowski. I don't even know that Seattle's going to take Lindstrom if he's exposed. Like he's not the kind of guy that typically in, in analytic circles, like jumps off the page. Like I got to get this guy. Maybe their traditional scouts really like him, or maybe they just see young right-handed D and that's enough to make it worth it. But I think if you protect Chalowski, expose Lindstrom, I think the odds are, just as good that the Kraken could take Giovanni Smith or Evgeny Svechnikov than than Gustav Lindstrom.
2: Yeah. I mean, I would be shocked if Lindstrom was taken. I mean, from an analytics standpoint, he doesn't, you know, grade out particularly well in in the public models. And then even from a scouting standpoint, I mean, I think we sort of forget about this. He was a massive reach at the time of the draft relative to where he was placed. Bob McKenzie had him 85th on his list. Lindstrom went 38th. I think McKean's had him 103rd. ISS had him 159th. Uh, Central Scouting had him as the 25th best European player, and he went 38th. Like it was just a huge pick, like right out of the get go, uh, to to swing on him that high. And so I, I just wonder if it's one of those scenarios where they, the Wings thought they saw something
3: there, and it just thus far hasn't panned out the way they were hoping it would.
1: All right, on to the next category. You have anything else to say on that before we do it? No, that's it. Okay, this one's from Zygmunt K. Zygmunt, I was going to put this in my written mailbag, but since we're going to do it here, I'm going to take it out. But I guess the advantage is now you get Prashant's input, which is probably (laughs) better than mine anyway. So Zygmunt asks, compare the Red Wings rebuild to other lottery teams. Who would you bet have the most or least success during the
2: 2020s? Oh, man, this is a lot of fun. I mean... If you're looking at the lottery teams right now, I guess are, are we assuming that we're going as we stand here?
1: Does he mean lottery as in bottom 15 or as in like bottom 5?
2: I'm I'm going to maybe focus in on the teams that I think we can consciously say are rebuilding. Right, like, like because yeah. I don't think we can say Dallas, St. Louis, no. Philly and Chicago certainly doesn't seem to be rebuilding. Um uh, and Calgary doesn't really fit in that. Vancouver, even though they are in the bottom five, has is not a team that is trying to rebuild. At least, yeah,
1: they were in the playoffs last year. They actually yeah. won a round of the playoffs last year. I don't, so I don't know if you can count them because they're kind of on the other side of their rebuild.
2: So maybe let's focus in on Buffalo, Anaheim, Los Angeles, Ottawa, New Jersey, uh, New Jersey, and Detroit. Rangers so, exempt. Yeah, I mean the Rangers to me—they're uh, post-rebuild. Okay, how's the re- rebuild going? Well, you won two lotteries. Great. Yeah,
1: it started. <laughs> you won two lotteries, signed Panarin, and it ended.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean they never really <laughs> tore it down because they, as soon as they won that first lottery, they went out. Right? They get Panarin, they get Truba. You know, they add Caco, and then they win another lottery. And so, yeah. you know what, Rangers, you're, I'm not even talking about you. So maybe if we focus on those seven teams, yeah, Buffalo, Anaheim, New Jersey. Um, I guess Columbus technically falls in since they yes, just started. I think they should. Columbus, Ottawa, Los Angeles, and Detroit. So, you know, if I'm at least stacking them up here, I think the team that's maybe in the best position is Los Angeles. Yep. I think they've drafted extraordinarily well. They're having a very competitive hockey team this year. Um, I mean, we just a little bit ago, we were talking about them potentially being in playoff uh, contention. They've sort of slipped back a little bit um recently, but I I mean they're they're a team that looks really good. They have a lot of great prospects. I mean, they've still got Quentin Byfield who got to make a Sanny Show debut. They've got Gabe velarde I mean they've got uh, Arthur Kaliev. Uh, just so many pieces over there. I'm probably forgetting some of the bigger names. Alex Turcott, I think's over there, yep. right? So I mean the, the the names go on and on and on. And Los Angeles is loaded. So I think if I'm betting on who's got the best outcomes in the 2020s, it's Los Angeles. But then after that, I think it's sort of a toss-up. New Jersey's got some better pieces uh, than Detroit does right now. I mean, Jack Hughes, obviously, is a great piece. Nico Hishire is a great piece. Um, and they've got some reasonable prospects there, and they're tearing down in a good manner. They're acquiring good draft picks. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if they have some great outcomes, but I think Detroit's right there with them. Um, Detroit's got a lot more picks, I think. Uh, they I like still in up- that
1: tier, too. Yeah.
2: Ottawa, well, Ottawa ownership is the only reason I'm not going to put them That's there because fair. I mean, I, I don't know what they're going to do. Like, yeah, they, they drafted well and they got Brady Kachuk. That's a good pick. And uh, obviously Thomas Shabbat looks like a heck of a player. Eric Branstrom, you know, maybe not as good as they thought he'd be, but still looks like a pretty solid player. Tim Stutzla, you know, rookie adjustment this year, he'll be fine moving forward. Batherson and, gonna, and Norris having yep, good yep, seasons. Batherson, right. Batherson's yep. have an outstanding season. So, They've also got some young pieces there, but I think ownership is why I can't put them in that tier. So maybe for the way I'm looking at it, I think LA is your one, New Jersey and Detroit are in some fashion, two or three. I think Ottawa and Columbus are maybe in that four and five. And then I probably go Anaheim and Buffalo after that.
1: That's interesting. So are you thinking Buffalo trade cycle? Is that fueling some of this?
2: No, I'm actually thinking they don't. I think if they trade Eichel, that would push them up because in likelihood, right, they would actually get some nice first round picks out of that, start from scratch and go from there. But hanging on to Eichel, I think, isn't going to fix anything here and you're going to age him out eventually.
1: That's interesting. I think of it, if they keep Eichel, I would put him one, uh, which I realize is crazy considering what their, their Betting season is like this year. All yeah, right. I, I I know, but they have to me like four of like the five things that you really, really want, uh, in, in your rebuild. And that is, uh, a, a true elite number one center, uh, check. That is Jack Eichel. You have the potential for an elite number one defenseman, Erasmus Deline. It hasn't been that way this season or last season when he was a rookie, he was awesome. Um, and I still believe that the overall picture of Rasmus Dalin would, would make me think, if I have him on my team, I have my future number one defenseman in the organization already. You have a good farm system. You have guys who are uh, at the NHL level or knocking on the NHL level, headlined by Dylan Cousins. Um, he's the kind of prospect that I want coming up that I'm going to have on an ELC in the next couple of years uh, to fuel this. You have a, a great kind of wingman for your star forward in Sam Reinhart, um, who's having what, one of the better seasons of his career this year, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sam Reinhart's a good hockey player.
1: Now, the drawbacks that you see in Buffalo, Jeff Skinner's contract is a problem. I would want to see more depth on defense. I I don't know if I'm buying the Rasmus Ristolainen show from this year or not. Um, Obviously, like everyone, goaltending is going to be a a big decider there. I I didn't love the Jack Quinn pick last season necessarily, but I don't know a ton about Jack Quinn other than, you know, the, the goal totals that kind of came out of nowhere. Maybe he really pops and maybe I look stupid. You know, that it's totally possible. Wouldn't be the first time. Uh, just check my bold predictions from this year. But, um, you know, to me, I, I just see they check a lot of boxes that you want. And they're the hardest boxes to check. And so, uh, to me, I would take Buffalo situation above most of those others. Um, the salary cap being an issue. And obviously, the, the negative momentum in Buffalo is the other concerning thing. It's just like, I do feel like the more positive momentum you have, the better it is for the whole picture um, because then that's how you avoid situations like the one that Eichel is in right now where we're talking about, are they going to trade this franchise center? Um, I would go LA too, partly because of all those teams, they're the one that's in the best position to do something like trade for Jack Eichel. You know, like they could make a Jack Eichel trade happen uh, in two weeks and they would have the pieces to do it and it would not be a death blow to their rebuild uh, by any means So they could make a really compelling collection of picks uh, and, and prospects to, to put together for Jack Eichel. And Hey, you know, at, at to your point, you could have good reason to think Buffalo would have to think about it. Um, the one thing that gives me a little pause with LA is I'm not sold that their best players are their young guys, like in, in terms of, you know, three, four years from now, even like, is Byfield going to be better than Kopitar on draft day? I would have told you he's probably comparable kind of ceiling to Kopitar. And if he gets there, great. I'm not certainly passing judgment on Quentin Byfield off of um, this rookie season in the AHL at age 18. I think he's still going to be a stud, but if you're, if you're like kind of best overall assets are still guys that are in their thirties, like Kopitar and Dowdy are, it would give me a little bit of pause about accidentally getting dragged up into the middle and then not being able to kind of get out once those guys really age out of their prime, I do think they have enough enough depth to weather it. I think they're probably gonna get their number one defenseman um toward the top of this draft um the the d certainly does stand out right now as an area that they don't have uh quite as much kind of prospect depth as they have up front but but you know I think ultimately even when Kopitar goes if you're one two three down the middle are like you know, Kopitar, Turcotte, Velarde, and you have Kaliev on the wing and you have Kempe on the wing or you have Kempe at center and you flex one of those other guys to the wing, you're in a really good spot still. So I, you know, LA to me would be a, a clear two for me after Buffalo. Um, with the caveat being, you know, you still want to see them add that franchise D piece and, and you still want to know that all the good, all the important pieces are in kind of the, the um, under 30 at least range going forward. And then I would agree, Detroit, New Jersey, and I would put Ottawa in that tier. Uh, and then I would put Anaheim behind that, and I would put Columbus behind that. Did I miss anybody?
2: No, I think you got them all.
1: Yeah, I would put Columbus in the worst spot. A lot of negative momentum from this year. Uh, core pieces leaving rather than coming in. Not sure that they actually ended up getting a core piece in exchange for Dubois. Like, I don't know what, what happens with Lining now, but this season was not encouraging in that regard. Seth Jones is a free agent in a year. Zach Wierenski is an RFA. Clean slate. In a year. Huh? Clean slate. Clean slate. That's that's an advantage for sure that they kind of the opposite of Buffalo in that regard. Uh, And maybe, maybe they'll get a stud. Maybe they'll win the lottery. Maybe they'll just get a great player in like four or five in this draft or one in this draft. Um, But you know, I I think they'd be last for me.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's reasonable. I think maybe the difference between you and I is um, I'm, I think you're looking more at like who's got the best pieces right now. Yep. Um, And I think that's, that favors your kind of rankings. Whereas I think my rankings are mostly who's got the best coming along with the fewest
1: obstacles, right? And
2: who's got the fewest obstacles, which means there's, there's no right answer here, because Max, you know, at the end of the day, you have to get those best pieces. And if you have them, well, that's, that's a big check uh, Check mark. You just have to be able to support those best pieces. Whereas in the other way around, sure, you've got all the flexibility and sure you've got things coming, but they have to actually be good. So uh, it, it it's a interesting way to go about it. But yeah, I mean, it's a it's a fun way to think about these teams that are rebuilding here.
1: Yeah, if you and I were gonna uh, prepare for a boat race against each other, I would buy a boat first and then go about fixing any of the issues with the boat. And you would save up looking and looking and looking to find the perfect boat. And you'd have less time, I guess, at that point, before the race to or, or you just have less certainty about what you're working with until, until you find the boat that you're going to get. But I would have the boat and be tinkering at it. And, you know, maybe you find a boat that has no structural issues, but I start out with the boat, I guess, is how I would.
3: Analogize yeah, I mean, that.
2: you know, a boat's a boat, right? A boat could be right. anything. It could that's be right. Even a boat, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's but, you right. Know, I, mean, for the I think that's box. a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great way to put it is you went ahead and bought the boat. Now you're going to repair all the holes in it, whereas I'm going to go, you know, try and find the pieces that make and a boat yep. and, and get it built. But I'm going to potentially run out of time here.
1: Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, Adam Flett. How would you grade Sean Horkoff and the Red Wings development staff so far? And how would you measure their success? That's such a hard question. Is their role as important on developing draft picks as important as Blashels? Hope you're say safe and well. Thanks Adam for the question. This is a very hard one. I mean, I think that second question is the key. How would you measure their success? I don't know the answer to that question.
2: I don't I don't know. I mean, I've been trying to kick around how to measure development and how do you separate it from innate skill and read the realities. I don't think you can um or if you can, I am not smart enough to figure that out. And so if you are that smart, please do figure it out and let me know so I can give a better answer here, but um that's the key, right? You know, did the Wings at the time, you know, did they draft players that had the potential to succeed? And because of either the development team or some other obstacle, they didn't really get where they were supposed to be. I don't know. I don't know what, what's to say here. All, all you can really say is that kind of the, the, the 17, 16, 15 drafts did not go the way the Red Wings needed them to go. And that's sort of why you're in this prolonged state but I don't know who you pin that on because or if there's really even one singular entity that you could pin that on.
1: Yeah, I, I I agree with that. I don't know how you could make that call. I mean, I do think you can look at things like, you know, you mentioned the 17 draft. You can look at like Michael Rasmussen and say, hey, here's a guy who... Maybe he doesn't have the the ceiling of kind of the ninth overall pick that you thought when they made that pick, but also you can look at tangible ways Michael Rasmussen's really improved, including things like his skating in the last year, and say that you know that's kind of one of the things that I would point toward the development staff and say like that's what you're looking for your development staff to do is help them fix certain traits, and that's one that I think to me at least that looks like it's obviously improved, but there's so much that we don't know. There's so much in like you know in in terms of like hitting the ceiling that is that is, you know, number one, we don't know how right we were about what the ceiling was on draft day. And number two, we don't know how to determine where where that ceiling changed along the path that it's just, you know, it's probably the hardest thing for us to assess this whole thing, right? It's right there with coaching, but a lot of it comes down to the unknown. And it's just not something I feel like I can measure in a in a meaningful way.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's why when we talk about all these drafts, you know, the NFL draft, the NBA draft, MLB, and, and and hockey, I think hockey and baseball are by far the two hardest to scout and to draft because you're oftentimes working with less information from multiple leagues and having to adjust for so many things. It's just tough to even know if you had the right ceiling in the first place.
1: Yep, exactly. I think the development staffs are in a tough spot from that regard because any anyone who hits the draft the drafters or the GM gets credit and anyone who misses it's why did the development staff mess this up? I think that's a really tough spot for them to be in. Exactly. Yep. All right. On to the next one. PJ Washer, looking at the last two or three drafts, how many players would you have taken instead of the Red Wings first round pick? I.e. someone picked after their selection. Hey, this dovetails nicely into a conversation we were having over text the <laughs> other day about Mord Sider.
2: I know. I mean, because uh, in my usual need to rile up, people on, on social media for my entertainment. Um, I mean, I tweeted out a poll for the 19 draft. I'm going to go ahead and set aside the 2020 draft. It's way too early for me to say anything there. And no, I'm not taking anybody who went after Raymond above him, even though Jamie Drysdale is already in the NHL. I'm not doing that. He's looked pretty good. Hasn't he? He has looked pretty good, but, but I'm not taking anybody over Lucas Raymond just yet. So maybe the first one we'll focus on is 2019. And so, you know, I tweeted out a poll that, asked where would Moritz Sider go in a redraft based on the information you have right now. And shockingly, a majority of people said he would either go, he would go in this, the two to four range. I actually think almost 50% of people who responded to the poll uh, said he would go into the two to four range, which for a reminder, uh, the 2019 draft was Jack Hughes, Capocacco, Kirby Doc, Bowen Byram, Alex Turcott, Moritz Sider at six. I don't know that I could take him Above maybe anybody at this point, except for Alex Turcott, is maybe the only one there. But then at the same time, you have to think about how good Dylan Cousins has been for Buffalo. I mean, Dylan Cousins is a bright spot in Buffalo. That's hard to do. You've got Spencer Knight making his NHL debut. You've obviously got um, Trevor Zegras has been dynamic and really, really excited. Cole Caulfield has made his NHL debut. So there's a lot of guys you have to think about. And then you also have to remember Nils Hoglander went uh, 40th overall. I think for me, if I'm redoing this redraft, I might be taking him at exactly six or even seven, depending where I'm going with uh, potentially the, the one guy I would take a, that one behind him being uh, Dylan Cousins. Uh, Zegers? I still don't know that I would take Zegers. I had I'll, for full transparency before that 19 draft, I had both Zegers and Cousins ahead of Cider. Yeah. And I think I was probably slamming text messages to you about taking Dylan Cousins on that day. And he's still the guy that I think is going to be the best center of the bunch uh, between him, Doc, and uh, Krebs being the other one there. And Peyton Krebs is also another guy who shouldn't have dropped as much as he did only because of his Achilles injury. But, yeah, I mean, I think... Probably Dylan Cousins. I think Zegris has to be in the conversation there, and you could potentially slide Turcott down, and that's how you get to seven. Otherwise, I think you're looking at one of those guys going above him, and maybe it's
3: six.
1: Uh, I had Zegris in that spot on draft day, and I agree with you that I would take Cider ahead of him today, although I still think Zegris, obviously, is going to score more points. But I think, you know, Cider, when you look at the whole picture, I think I'd probably go above Zegris. Uh, I would call it a toss-up with cousins for me, and I think Byram is one where I think people are knocking Byram a little too much for not producing right now in the NHL. Cider's not producing right now in the NHL either, you know. Like, yes, I think exactly Byram, zero NHL. Points. Exactly. Like I think <laughs> Cy- Byram would be producing in the SHL if he were there. So um, I, I'd still kind of, I guess, lean to Byram there. I, I would go somewhere, probably five or six for cider for me. It would, it would still go Hughes, Kako, Doc in the top three. And then uh, Byram, if I'm saying kind of there's three in that Byram cousin cider tier for me, then I'm going to say you split the difference and put one ahead of him, one behind him. He goes fifth, but I could hear him at six behind both of them. If you could probably twist my arm to get him to four, uh, depending on if it was the day that he had like a three point game or something. Uh, but you know that that's probably where I'm at.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the the strongest argument you can make for him is probably five, and it's somewhere in reality is probably between six and seven. I think that's um,
1: fair. F- five to seven is the overall range for me. So.
2: All right, I like it. All right, and then I guess the last one to, to cover out his question is the 2018 draft. So Wings took Philip Zadina at six. A lot of people thought that was a steal. When Rasmus Dahlin, and Andre Svechnikov, Yisperi Kakaniemi, Brady Kachuk, Barrett Hayton, Zadina. And then, of course, it was Quinn Hughes. Adam Boquist, Vitelli Kravtsov, Evan Bouchard. i you actually taking any of those guys ahead of Zadina at this point.
1: Well, Hughes, yeah. Um, I don't think I'd take... I wouldn't take Kravtsov, Boquist, Bouchard. I don't think I'd take Wallstrom. I don't Farabee? Uh, Farabee would be tough. I, I think I'd probably still take Zadina, but I, I, you could have a good argument for Farabee. What do you think?
2: I think you could have a solid argument for Farabee. He certainly scored better than Zadina thus far. Um, I probably would lean Farabee over Zadina at this point. It's a,
1: it's a good argument. I mean, I, the, yeah. he, I think Farabee would be a top 10 pick for me in a redraft. The guys I'm interested in are the defensemen that went later. Keandre Miller, Rasmus Sandin, Nils Lundqvist. Any of those you're taking over Zadina?
2: I don't think so. I think part of it is I haven't seen enough of those guys to really be comfortable enough to, to part ways with, with Philip Zadina. I mean, Keandre Miller looks really, really solid in New York, but this is still his first season. Um, and I have more information on Zadina, and I like the trajectory of Philip Zadina right now. So I'd probably still be sticking there. Uh, Lundquist again, a guy, very interesting. Romanov would be another seen one. Him. Yep, Romanov's another one. Sandin, I've only seen 35 games. I haven't seen enough um, to to wanna, to want really sway me just yet. Yeah,
1: I think that's fair. I mean, Zadina's still a top 10 pick for me. I don't know exactly where it falls. I, I'd certainly take him ahead of Hayton, who went ahead of him. Uh, Kakaniemi, I think it's close. I don't know. What, what are you doing? I'd probably
2: take him over Kak. Yeah, yeah,
1: I think so too. So, I mean, I think Zadina went right about the right spot. I think Cider went right about the right spot. So I think that's kind of ultimately what he's looking to, to ascertain there. Yeah. All right. Uh, Ramsank. Curious where you guys stand with Jacob Verona right now in regards to keeping him as part of the rebuild or trying to trade him for more assets. When they picked him up, I thought I was all about trading him, but dang, is he good and smooth. That's what uh, Ramsank says. Uh, where are you at on Verana?
2: uh same place i uh, I was with Anthony Mantha, if the deal is as good as it is, you make the deal um otherwise you know he's young enough to still be a part of things
1: yeah, I would say there is no Rush like there, you know. There's no rush to uh, get rid of this guy. He, you you are a team that lacks offense. Like few teams in the league, maybe no teams in the league do. This guy can give you offense uh, at the snap of your fingers. He has proven that. He has done that in Detroit in just nine games, six goals, four of them in one game. Uh, beautiful shootout goal the other night. Uh, I would be keeping Jacob Brown in the picture and probably signing him with you know this offseason. Now the, the question is, I mean, I'm definitely signing him this offseason. The question is, are you signing him with term or are you signing to a one-year deal to get more information about him?
2: I honestly think you're giving almost the exact same deal you gave to Anthony Manta. I think that is what evolving point, hockey projects. I mean, 5.5 million for four years is yeah. probably exactly what you do. I think in my mock rebuild, I gave him 5.4 million for three years, which is uh, pretty close. So I think probably three to four years and somewhere in that ballpark.
1: Could you see an argument for going one year at four and a half to just make sure that, that it fits and, and all that stuff before you, you do the longer deal?
2: I mean, you, you certainly could. Um, I don't know how that would impact his uh, price, I guess, like in terms of what his trade value looks like. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to double check because, you know, the part of the benefit the Red Wings have this season is, or this offseason, I should say, is that uh, he's still a restricted free agent for them one year still keeps him a restricted free agent yes, it does. because uh, his UFA years until 2023, it does impact his arbitration All the being said, I don't think it would significantly alter a future deal. So yeah, I could see a one year show me deal um, being there as well. But I think he might be a little bit more valuable like Mantha was at this year's deadline with a little bit more term attached.
1: That could very well be. So yeah, I mean, I would sign him and then you're not going to hang up the phone on somebody who calls, but um, You know, right now you're a team that lacks offense and he might be your best offensive player. Is that fair?
2: Yeah. I mean, he's by far the best offensive player on this team and it's not even close.
1: All right. Uh, quick hitters, Josh Lodato, which prospects do you see being in GR next season?
2: Uh, That's a great question. I think it's probably going to be Albert Johansson, Lucas Raymond, Jonathan Bergerin. Uh Donovan Sobrango probably stays down there. Uh, McIsaac is probably still there. I don't think you see Tuomisto. I think he stays in the the answer. Sobrango has to go back to the OHL. That's right. That's right. Sobrango will have to go back to the Which is so crazy.
1: They should exempt anyone who got screwed by this year from that and and already played in the AHL.
2: Yeah, that would be such a huge bummer for Sobrango. So, yeah, unfortunately, he would have to go back once the OHL season picks back up. Um, But yeah, I think that's probably the crux of who you're going to see there.
3: Any chance you think
1: Johansson would stay one more in Sweden?
2: I don't think so. I think Johansson comes, but Vero stays. Vero's the other guy that I was thinking about.
1: Yep, I could see that. And I think Vero, you, Vero could be a candidate to get his ELC this summer.
2: Yeah, he's looking really, really good. He's a guy you probably want to advance a little bit quicker.
1: Yep, I would argue. So I, I, I think we're we're right in step there. I, I would put Raymond in, in GR. I think you would be a little more aggressive with him, right?
2: I would be a little more aggressive, but I think he ultimately ends up in GR.
1: Yep. All right, uh, Ben Cozy, which UFAs will be back this offseason? So for a refresher, we're probably talking here about the pool of Gagne, Helm, Glendening, Ryan, Stahl. Who else? Is that it?
2: I think think those are the— Bernier.
1: Yeah, Bernier. um, I guess Merrill we can include if we want to include guys who already left. Nemeth.
2: Yeah, I think that's it because everybody else is restricted free agent. Yeah, yep. David Savard. No, uh, I mean, if I'm if I'm picking guys who are UFAs to be back, I think the forwards I would consider would be Sam Gagne, um, maybe Bobby Ryan if you're not going to go for a big splash. Uh, goalie, I would absolutely bring Jonathan Bernier back. And then defense, I'm not bringing anybody back, um, even John Merrill. I think I'm probably passing at this point.
1: I'd bring back Bernier, Merrill in that order, 1-2. One of Gagne or Ryan. And then I think, you know, it, it wouldn't, I, I think Clint Denning makes sense to bring back, but I get why people say uh, that they'd rather not. Um, You know, I, I do think fourth line center is a position that it, it, you don't need to have like you know, a a long term you know guy who's been there forever doing it. I think it's not a bad place to be able to break in guys. But you know, with with skill guys, I think you want them if possible playing on higher roles. Like I think for, if you ask Chase Pearson to handle the fourth line center role next season, he could do it. I was if just you saying asked,
2: you're setting up for a Chase Pearson reference. So.
1: Well, yeah, someone asked in the mailbag about him, so I'm already gonna get gonna get that out of the way. But. All right, um, great. But yeah, you know, I I think that you know Luke a guy who makes perfect sense for for what you're what you're doing right now. But I don't think it's like a necessity, and I, I certainly think it's, it's a situation with any fourth line center you're going with a short term deal. So if you want to do a one year or two year, I don't see the downside of it. He's one of the better fourth line centers in the league, in my opinion. I don't you know I don't know how, how that tracks with uh, with the underlings, but um, I don't know. I I, I wouldn't have a problem bringing back three or four guys, but. You know, Eisman hasn't really done a lot of that since he's been here. Like he's kind of been o- open to turnover. So it would not surprise me if it's just really two guys. Yeah. And I think and to your point, Bernier Gagne would make a lot of sense for that.
2: That's kind of where I'm at is Bernier Gagne. Although there is one other free agent. We didn't talk about It is a, a Henrik Zetterberg whose contract will be coming up. I think, uh, I think that one's all done there.
1: Yeah. I don't know if he's going to be interested in re-signing.
2: I, I strongly doubt that.
1: He could be a good fourth line center.
2: I think he could still do it. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, I mean, so I think we got a question. I got a question from my mailbag about why we were advocating for Gagne over Svechnikov. Do you want to touch on that really quick?
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, so I think there's a couple of reasons. Number one, Sam Gagne is incredibly talented player. He's 30 years old, um, has a lot of that skill that you like to see, um, has no problem playing the game that, or the style that Blasio wants. Um, and has succeeded at it. So if you look at kind of the underlying statistics and goals above replacement, expected goals above replacement, he's been towards the top of the team for a majority of the season uh, as, as one of Detroit's better players. He's kind of thrived in the system and he did it for cheap. And, you know, he also seems to be a pretty good community guy with some of the fundraising stuff he's done around. So for me, he's a good locker room player to have. He's a good veteran. You know, you always talk about that veteran presence. Uh, that's what I see in him. And I, I think that can be valuable here.
1: I agree. He's the ideal like veteran player to have around in that he actually is one of their more effective players uh, on the, on the team. And that, I know that doesn't always come up in, in goals and in assist, but in terms of like expected goals uh, in terms of winning his shifts and doing things the way they want to do them, he's very high on that list. And Oh, by the way, he's a really good guy who I think is the kind of guy you want setting the example uh, for your young players. And it comes with, with that, you know, he's one of your more effective players, not just he, that's all he's there to do. Um, I think that's important. I think you could say the same about Bobby Ryan, although Bobby Ryan's kind of more like a, he's going to get it done on the score sheet. He's maybe not the kind of complete game Sam Gagne has, but either one of them, I think gives you that kind of effective veteran player. And and I certainly, I'll tell you this, I wouldn't want them to go this off season and bring back none of those three between Gagne, Glendenning, and Ryan. I think you got to bring back at least one of them. Um, I would probably bring back two of them, but I I can hear an argument that it should be one of them. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. I mean, I bring back one of them as well. And that's why Sam Gagne is kind of the one that I think still contributes the most yeah. of them and, and can maybe still provide that veteran presence.
1: Actually. So Phil from that Stetcher question, finally just replied on Twitter and said, expose 70. He's got one year left. If they decide to keep him as trade bait, they'll get a fourth, all for the risk of losing a young player with potential to be much better than that pick. Same for Nemesnikov. Why protect placeholders? So I guess we can add a little bit of context to that although I do think we basically covered this. I just think, you know, viewing a 27-year-old as a quote-unquote placeholder, I don't know if that's really a- an accurate reflection of what's going on here. Like I don't know why Stetcher is more of a quote-unquote placeholder than Lindstrom would be.
2: And I mean, viewing a 25-year-old as a prospect with a lot of potential is also the same thing. I mean, yeah. there's certainly the potential for me to go out and score 30 in my next game, but you know what? I it's a low probability. Um, you know, and so calling Svechnikov a guy with a lot of prospects, a, a prospect um, with high potential, isn't really a thing because he's going to be 25 in five months. Um, you know, you, you same thing for Chalowski and, and Lindstrom, they're 23 and 22 respectively now. Like, it's not that they're getting old in that sense, it's that they're sort of aging out of the time frame where we are going Which to, there's much more projection right, left, yeah. right? Where we are going to expect radical changes to happen to their game. They are who, who we thought they were like, give me, give me the Denny green reference right now. They are who we thought they were like that. That's what it is at this point. Like you're running out of time to see more from them. So I'd rather take the player who's better right now.
1: The one year deal thing wouldn't concern me because you can just re-sign them. like, the, the, you're not at the point where, you know, they're, they're going to price themselves out of, of, you know, of anything. I mean, I, I think the only case you have is, uh, you know, if Chelowski or Lindstrom are good, like you, you can give them the room to prove it, I guess. But right now on the defense, I don't see that being a problem. If they, if they believe in these guys, they want to see these guys. They can already do that regardless of what happens with Stetcher. So, I don't see a case to protect either of them over Stetcher. I think you are deciding between one of the two, and I don't think it's accurate to call either Stetcher or Nemesnikov a quote unquote placeholder. I just don't believe that at all.
2: Yeah, I think it's again, it's it's selective bias in the sense of viewing all one of pro player, sports. Like there's turnover. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly.
1: All right. <laughs> uh, that's going to do it for us today. We'll be back at you later this week. No games in between now and then. So, uh, you know, good luck to us coming up with uh, with some topics. And if you guys have any suggestions, Boltman at theathletic.com or you can get either of us on Twitter. Thanks so much and take care.